we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can really go anywhere that a conversation might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Professor Retsef Levy, who is the J. Spencer Standish Professor of Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Dr. Levy's academic training is in mathematics and operations research, and he worked for more than a decade in Israeli military intelligence before moving to academia, where he's been studying how advanced analytics informs the design and operation of complex business and organizational systems that operate under uncertainty. His research spans various areas, such as risk management, health and healthcare management, food and agricultural systems, safety and quality management of biologics and drugs, and logistics. Dr. Levy has also been leading several industry-based collaborative research efforts with major academic hospitals in the Boston and New York City areas, and is a lead PI, that's a principal investigator, on an MIT contract with the FDA to develop a systematic risk management approach to address risks of economically motivated adulterations in food manufactured in global supply chains, as well as that he's the PI on an FDA award on how AI and advanced analytics could inform pharmaceutical regulatory activities related to biologic drugs. So this AI thing we're probably going to talk about because I have strong opinions on that too. Thanks, Harvey, for having me on the podcast. So what have you been thinking about lately? Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I uh, I think that um, I'm I'm a very optimistic uh, uh, person in my nature, uh, but uh, the last three years um, left me uh, very concerned um, on on issues that are much broader than uh, just my scientific uh, work. They are related to my scientific work, but they are much broader than that. Um, in that that I I really think that there is. Um, a fundamental uh, divide in the world today about what will be the essence of future democracies or the so-called concept of democracy. Um, and I, I think that um, my perception is that uh, the traditional notion of democracy uh, put uh, has put in the center the you know individual rights and the freedom to make choices about their own life. Um, and also uh, 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 about on the idea that there are elected representatives that are obliged to work for the uh, for the people that elected them. And I think that uh, <clears throat> what we've seen throughout COVID, and, and there are still ongoing issues related to COVID, but to other, um, what I would say, health-related emergencies or, pers- or positioned as emergencies, uh, but but there is a sentiment that in order to survive, we will need to change the concept of the, the traditional concept of democracy and take away the centrality of human rights and freedom to choose. 
and uh, move to a concept of democracy that I, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a democracy, but uh, for, for lack of a better uh, term, um, it's going to be relying on uh, centralized control of a small group of people, not necessarily elected, maybe primarily rich uh, corporates and rich people that will determine what is good for everybody and will impose centralized policies. Um, and I don't view that as democracy. So that's new concept of democracies in my mind, undermining uh, the two most important principles of, of what I could consider democracy. And, and that's something that really disturbs me, uh, particularly because I, I think that science and scientists and, and medicines are playing a role in justifying uh, some of the attempts to, to change that notion by um, creating a, a sense of, of, of emergency, a sense of uh, basically inevitable uh, change that we have to make, otherwise uh, humanity will not survive. So th that kind of worries me a lot. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm a father of six children. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of keep thinking about what can I do to make sure that at least I know um, that I did everything I can do um, to ensure that the world they grow up into uh, is uh, is not losing that sen sense or that, that notion of democracy and freedom. And, you know, the other thing that is related to my work that is, is relevant here is that I think that there's a lot, there are a lot of technologies that make it much easier to, 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 to make that very, very uh, undesirable transition that people, that some people are trying to promote. Uh, like so I, I, actually, I would suggest that what you're observing is not new, that it has been done for at least a thousand years if not more using the technologies available in every era that the the people with large resources have always attempted to control their societies for their own benefit and it's an it can be an absorbing state mathematically an absorbing state if they have enough resources and that's why we have had monopoly laws and things like that to prevent the absorbing state in the United States, but they have the but they have not been good enough to prevent it in the era era of modern and cheap tools that allows much greater electronic controls. I think that that this has been a problem that is not as I said, it's not just now, but it's accelerated and become public. And you, of course, as I have, have been speaking publicly about it, which is the best that you can do, as you're saying, for your your children and the world they're going to inherit, is to be public to the degree that you become a one among many of us as a roadblock to the bulldozer of, of doing this over the society. And the whole thing is a fraud, as you probably know, that there is no medical or public health reason why the society should be curtailing rights constitutional rights on the basis of benefit to the society this is a propaganda piece and 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 it sticks in to people because number one they've been manipulated to be afraid and number two 
the universities have spent the last 40 years in removing people's understanding of what a democratic society is, what civic virtue is, and so on. And people don't have any idea of what democracy really means. They think they can just, it means just you can do what you want. And it has no ideas about responsibility. So I think this has been going on. This is a playbook that's been going on for a very long time. And it's now more out into the open about this. Um, and and one other thing I'd point out is there's a really what I consider an amazing essay written by Jane Orient, who's a uh, physician. She's she's put out five or six essays on what she calls negative evidence, meaning that if there's a question, a medical question that's out there that hasn't been addressed, but should be, hasn't been formally addressed by the government or research entities and so on, it that is evidence. Uh, the lack of, of investigation is evidence that the it's true that that they're not investigated because they know if they investigated it they would find out what they don't want to find out. So in one of these that's out that's in the summer uh, 2023 just out now um, issue of the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, she has an essay on COVID vaccines and sudden deaths. Now you'd think that this essay would be about sudden deaths, but the majority of the essay is not about sudden deaths. The first half is about the agenda of the pro-vaccination lobby. And in that, she has a whole discussion of philosophies of government of the left versus the right. And it's exactly what you just said about the operationalization of people into commodities rather than humans with rights. And the differences in how the left sees government versus how the right sees government. And the left doesn't really see, it calls it democracy, but it's not really a democracy. And the right is still invested in constitutionality and democracy. And then at the end of this, she talks about the the, um, the medical freedom movement. And there's a whole long essay on that. So I would recommend people to go. I actually read it. It's, it's actually coincidental. I read it yesterday evening. Uh, it's... Um... You know, just a few reactions to what you said. Like, I I accept the uh, thesis that this has not something. Uh, this is not something completely new. I think that though, uh, I think probably would agree that the last three years have normalized a lot of progress <laughs> towards the bad direction um, in, in terms of what people were willing to uh, to absorb under um, fear. And I, you know, one of the things that I've learned uh, over the last three years is the power of fear of inhibiting uh, ra- rationale, m- ethics. Um, it's a very powerful uh, instrument. And I, I think like, if you are able to apply it, you, you, you are likely to um, impact um, a lot of people, including very intelligent people or presumably very intelligent people. Now, you know, you mentioned also the right and left. And um, it's very tempting to uh, put it in the context of, of the, is the political context of the right and left, but um, and 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 I think that it's really a country specific um, uh, discussion probably. But at least uh, in Israel, and I, I I've been involved uh, with policy related to COVID nineteen in Israel of the last uh, two three years, and and I just spent a sabbatical in Israel, so um, I actually think that. The, it's not obvious to me that it's just a matter of uh, left and right, because in Israel, there were two governments, one that was uh, right-based and the other one that was essentially uh, center, a little bit of right, but uh, also all the left, almost to, to the most extreme left, right? 
uh, and they essentially uh, applied very similar policies. So I I think that, and again, I I appreciate the fact that they, this might be um, a country by country uh, discussion. I I think that there is a at the end of the day uh, question. Um, what in the value system of people and, and societies, where do you put and rank the freedom of the individual to make choices? Um, and, and where do you put the boundaries? And um, I think that, um, at least in Israel, I've seen that that's not an obvious concept, both to the right and to the left. And in fact, I think that as you go more to the extreme, you actually lose that sentiment. So, in in, in my my uh, kind of my terminology is that I I've seen um, right 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 wing fascism and left wing fascism, um, just, you know, covered and maybe formulated uh, differently. Uh, but the ultimate outcome um, is not that different. Um, well, I, Israel Israel has an existential issue that the United States more or less doesn't have, and so people are willing to live without a constitution. It, you know, Israel still doesn't have a constitution. It's got basic laws that the Supreme Court has asserted are constitutional in one uh, in one side of its mouth and are not constitutional or preparatory to a constitution on the other side of its mouth, and so that limits people's view of making it a pure democracy, just like Israel has a tension between a religious state and a democratic state, it's got a tension between democracy and protection. Yeah. But but but, but that, that's true, but um, it's kind of an interesting discussion whether uh, a constitution imposed, is imposing a value system or it's the, the other way around, that if you have a value system, then you have a, a constitution. So my question oh, is, it's both. my question is, my, my question, I, you know, my hypothesis is that um, I, I, I believe that at the, the end of the day, what matters the most is the value system. That, that's kind of the starting point. Like what, what really people believe are is the right value system uh and, and it's a matter of belief um and i i unfortunately um things that were more obvious uh in the past are less obvious today but i still believe that the vast majority of society um if explained correctly the situation will vote and will prefer strongly prefer uh, freedom of the individual. Uh, well, there's empirical data. Uh, for one, when the Berlin Wall came down, which direction did people go? Yeah, people like they, they, they go with their feet. You know, it's obvious that people know um, which societies create better standards of living, and it's very obvious that that socialist societies have a dreadful standard of living by and large across the great majority of their populations everywhere that those forms of government have been tried. And so why do people, you know, I, empirically, if you're looking at Jeremy Bentham's philosophy of the greatest good for the most people, socialism fails on that basis. Now, I'm not saying that that that, that Benthamism is a form of democracy. It's not. But at, at least when it, it's invoked as a reasoning, you know, the, the 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 societies of the left have largely failed to live up to what they proclaimed as better standards of life for for the people. Yeah, you, you know, uh, again, I I I I I'm a little bit um, maybe my my only pushback on this would be that 
uh, I think one of the other issues that is underlying all of this, and I think that that's again not a matter of a right and le- or left. It's it's a matter of actually. Uh, I think that one of the failures of most uh, developed uh, countries that presumably have democracies is that we uh, are in a state of a highly unfair allocation of resources where where a lot of resources are concentrated in a very small with with the with the hands of a very small fraction of society uh with a lot of people left uh behind and basically losing the trust uh in all the existing systems and and I think that that's another uh very threatening uh trend because um you know, I, I'm going. I'm going to maybe do a sidetrack, but I'm going to talk in, on on China for one second. So I, I've been actually working with China, in China quite for quite some time um, until COVID started. I would go there, and I had some big project there on food safety. Uh, and one of the things that pe- pe- people think about uh, the Chinese government as a di- dictatorship, it's definitely not being elected democ- democratically. But if you know anything about China, you would appreciate the fact that no dictatorship will survive there unless the people in China would believe that the government is taking care of them and is doing is making decisions for their, you know, that overall benefits them. Um, and um, I, I, I'm saying that because um, to, to some extent, that sentiment that the government and policies are actually being made for the best or for for the well-being or for for the economic uh, growth or quality of life of the vast majority of the population. I don't think that that sentiment is there anymore in many countries. And and I think that that leads to a lot of divide uh, in all parts of society that becomes even more extreme, you know, don't have trust in the system. Um, and, and again, this is not something that is just has to do with right or left or even with democracies or non-democracies. It's, it's, it's something that I think, again, is being accelerated uh, sometimes by technology. Um, uh, and and um, so, so as much as I, I believe in free market and like, but, but I also think that we need to be um, putting the boundaries that allow, allow fair competition that people, because I think that the... Um, you know, if people lose the, the 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 hope and the belief that they can mo- mobilize themselves in society if they just work hard, that's kind of where society start to uh, crumble. Well, I agree. We've actually got to our commercial break point. So let's pause. We'll be back shortly. So everybody, please stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. 
Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Professor Retzef Levy. We were just discussing what I would translate to be the difference between capitalism and crony capitalism. That, that crony capitalism is a corruption form where it looks like there's free trade, but there isn't because people behind the scenes with resources are interacting with each other to control their business benefits without regard to the open market. And and that's the problem with the United States, at least for the last hundred years, that it hasn't been a pure capitalist system. There's been a lot of crony capitalism going on and why interlocking directorates and monopoly laws and all this stuff had to be instituted to prevent the, the, the locking up the absorbing state of businesses to control the, the the society the standard of living and everything about the society for their own benefits and i i, I agree with you the other part the problem though is brainwashing people to think they're living in in a utopian society when their standard of living is really poor you know and and that they have no idea that that they could be at a higher standard of living and that for that you have to block all incoming uh radio tv media from other countries doing better so that people remain ill-informed about their standard of living and and that becomes a controlled totalitarian society yeah you know i think i I think uh, let let me maybe uh connect that sentiment to what happened in covid i think that many of you know one, one thing that uh was striking to me during um the periods of lockdowns in covid that i would talk with people in my professional circle or, 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 you know, social circles. And uh, many, many of them would, would have the following reactions. Like, you know, what is the big deal with lockdowns? You know, it's fine. I, I actually like being at home. And this is laptop, laptop class. Yeah. But, but, but this is, this is the issue. I think that, um, you know, when, when you have that such a divide of resources are not allocated uh, equally, uh, then, then the people that make the decisions cannot even envision the impact that their decisions may have on people that are not like them. Uh, I, I was trying to, you know, argue with them, say, "Hey, uh, that's maybe great because you can really work effectively from home. You uh, maybe can bring help to take care of your children. Uh, but what about the essential workers?" Uh, that maybe have to work two jobs and now they don't have schools and they need to leave their kids in a in a neighborhood that maybe uh, if you go around the neighborhood, the chances that your kid is going to, um, you know, engage in criminal activities and other very bad activities is, is pretty high because the school is perhaps the place that pro- that protects, that, that provides the emotional and uh, the, the social protection for or the opportunity of their of their kids to actually get 
get out of the of the current poverty, right? So um, this was not a very easy um, thing to explain and, and, and convey, especially not for people that are scared. And 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 I, you know, and, and that kind of kind of connects to another thing that, like, I, I think our society um, being becoming more and more privileged in certain circles, and also, you know, death death becomes like something that is um, almost unnatural. Like like deaths cannot be permitted. No deaths can be permitted, especially not uh, around me. Deaths and, control people. That's the problem. It's kind of a hubris. I, I would I would argue that there is some some level of hubris here. That and, and that's another aspect that I think happened over the last several the last three years. When when you think about some of the policies and some of the ideas that people had, that oh we can stop a, a, a respiratory virus. No, you 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 cannot. Right. And and if you if you if you're making decisions under um, being hubris and think that you are uh, above nature and that you can control nature uh then you are you're going to end up with disasters similarly if you, if you think about the concept of the mrna vaccines this is hubris right this is again mankind thinking that we can actually intervene with human cells and we can uh control them and tweak them to produce an antigen or a pro- pro- protein that they were not supposed to to uh to uh um, to produce and we're gonna rush it because we we think we can control it, which it's, it goes against any sensible sensible understanding of the human body, biology, vaccine development, everything. It's squeezing one end of the balloon and not recognizing that the other end of the balloon is exploding. That's right. Yeah, but but, but I, I I just uh, I just think that um, there are many traits that are now characteristic of how we make decisions about public policies, public health policies, but more generally public policies that are uh, characteristics of the last uh, the discussion we had in the last couple of minutes, which is, you know, people that are that belong to very specific circles of societies that own a lot of the resources and are completely oblivious to the rest of society, uh, making decisions out of uh, being hubris that they can control nature uh, and, and often also setting up very, very narrow metrics of success. What success? So for example, in the COVID-19 years, uh, you know, this focus on uh, the number of infections, right? Like that was driving, <laughs> that was driving you know, he- public health became equivalent to the number of COVID-19 infections or maybe the number of COVID-19 infections and uh, COVID-19 hospitalizations and COVID-19 deaths. That We took human health and we kind of narrowed it to a very specific set of metrics and we basically justified all the policies only in the context of these metrics without considering uh you know what are the implications uh but the, not but only the to us, but to, to the rest of society right so the metrics were wrong the number of cases has never been a metric for managing a pandemic what matters is the harm from the cases not the case numbers but, but the, what matters is overall health outcomes right like always like like all right i always joke i here's a way to make sure that you're not going to have COVID deaths. And sorry if I'm very provocative, take the people and shoot them in the head. They will not die from COVID. They will right. die from something else. But like, th- that's not a very good approach. We all agree, right? Like, so... Right, all-cause mortality is the bottom Yeah, all-cause mortality and well-being of, of people. Like, uh, and, and you also need to think about it in the long in the long, uh, in the the long long run. But by the way, you see exactly the same thing uh, around climate change. And again, I'm not getting into the debate 
it's not the point that I'm trying to make now is whether people are right. But when I hear that the goals of the policy is to reduce CO2 emission, I'm becoming very worried because no, that's not the goal. That maybe it's maybe it's a mean to a goal, but the goal is to make people healthier, uh, better off uh, economically, right? So, right? so a policy cannot be described based on a narrow goal. Uh, a policy has to be described through the lens of a robust set of metrics that really mean uh, or really capture the right notion of well-being and health of of, the, of society and individuals. And once you you know once you formulate a policy along a metric like that, and me as someone that basically my expertise is to understand decision processes and how you actually build and optimize decision processes. This is already wrong starting point, right? Like you are very li- un- very likely to make terrible decisions if that's going to be your metric. Uh, right. But these people are hiding their metric. The real metric is a religious philosophical belief that they want to accomplish something that's untenable and unacceptable for the general population. And so they hide it by couching it in something that sounds plausible. Well, that is in your opinion, so... Well, of course, but there's but no. What 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 is their hidden set of metrics? That somehow populations are bad. That nature is good. This is what what uh, Jane Orient said. That that plants are are good and animals are heroic. You know, living in 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 synchrony with nature and man is bad and and comes in and destroys nature for 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 bad values. Th- th- this is a perversion of traditional religious beliefs based on some kind of guilt of some you know uh, I, I can't say exactly why but it's a it's a philosophical problem that people ha- are just not paying attention to the reality of the world yeah you know um I, i'm not disputing that maybe some people having the, that perception but I, i'm not sure if the okay if i if i now look on all the people that promote climate change um I want to be be very clear. I'm not talking now about whether this, you know, I'm not trying to dispute that doing research around um, renewable energies and alternative energy sources is is a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a worthwhile scientific uh, word. But but the question is, is it right to formulate uh, both from a scientific perspective, but also more importantly, from a public policy perspective, uh, policies that are uh, all formulated around a narrow goal of reducing CO2 emission. Uh, my my argument would be that regardless if we need or don't need to reduce CO2 emission. By the way, it's it's always a matter of how, right? Like if you don't tell me how you how you're going to do that, right. then it's very hard to answer whether we should do it or not. But uh, my my point is is mostly about the set of metrics that we need to optimize for uh, or manage for, which cannot just be uh you know one dimensional metric that does not have uh even a a clear or direct relationship to well-being and health of humans of individuals and societies and i think we had the same thing in covid in covid-19 um where we basically again uh um took a very complex set of metrics that capture uh human health uh and well-being and we basically narrowed them down to uh, very narrow metrics. We talked about them, and, and the, the, the result was disaster, um, generational disaster, if I may say. Uh, I, I'm, I'm worried that 
going uh, trying to do that the same in the context of climate change is not going to lead to better outcomes. Um, well, I agree with you. I think that basically people believe they live in a mind world of, of simplistic theories. And, you know, confronting them with data and, and complexity makes it too hard for them to manage policies. And so they want to boil it down. They, you know, in COVID, we couldn't even boil down a policy that was age specific. And, we, and there was a thousandfold difference in mortality across the age span. And yet we still couldn't get the people to recognize that this was the salient reasoning of how you're going to formulate policy. I I think that that's one of the, uh, again, uh, it has to do with, but but it's easier to do that when you simplify the metric, right? Like if you, if your overall, uh, your overall uh, set of metrics capture different aspects of uh, the health, then it's natural to start asking the questions, or oh, who is at risk from COVID? Who is at risk from the measures that we consider against COVID? Uh, what is the impact of different parts of the population? And then um, make, by the way, it's not going to make the decisions uh, necessarily easy. You can still have tough trade-offs and you can still have a debate of what is the right trade-off, but at least it's a meaningful discussion. And and my my point is, if you don't have the, the right metric, then then the basis for the discussion is, is, is completely distorted. So... Well, that's what we live through. That it, yeah, absolutely. It I, I agree with you. Because I, of that. I fully agree. I fully agree with you. And and um, unfortunately, I see that now. You know, I, w- one of the things that um, I'm uh, as a scientist, I'm, I'm curious about is the quality of decision processes. And you know, because when when you make decisions under uncertainty, looking retrospectively and 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 questioning a decision is uh, is not is being uh, if I say overhuchem if. Uh, Mm-hmm. If I borrow uh, a Yiddish word, uh, so it's being a, a smart retrospectively. Uh, so I think that what matters is the quality of the decision processes. Do, do you do, did you choose the right metrics? Did, did you bring the right data? Did you consider the right questions and and so forth and so forth? And then you can still make mistakes retrospectively, but that's going to be a legitimate mistake. And so maybe maybe just to illustrate the point, um, let's just talk about the vaccines and. Um, People always ask me, uh, how do you think, why do you think governments still deny uh, the the colossal uh, failure of, of the mRNA vaccines or the, all the other vaccines, and including the major side effects that they have? Um, and my explanation to that is the following. So let, let's just put ourselves again in at the end of 2020, when we have an experimental product under our hands with a new technology, and we are very worried from uh, a virus that potentially um, can harm old and sick people, right? Um, now, if you would tell me that at that point you you made the decision to recommend it to the high-risk population, I think that retrospectively you can even question that decision, but but prospectively that would be a legitimate decision. So, I mean, okay, I had uncertainty, uh, you know, I, I, I took a bet, Right, uh, I presented to the this high risk population the pros and cons, and I told them I recommended. Right, I think the moment you made the decision to give it to young and young people and children and mandated it, not only just recommended it, you put yourself in a situation that you cannot admit wrong anymore because you made an unreasonable decision prospectively, and if some, something goes wrong now, you have no 
justification to say, hey, there was an uncertainty. I took a bet, a legitimate bet. And even if it didn't work, it's not criminal. Like, so I think that what we see now, the denial that we see now is part of the decision on that fork, not just to give it to the high-risk population, but to go and really forcefully mandate it to everybody, including young people, including children. And what we see now is what I call a commitment escalation. Like the, like the more the, st- the higher the stakes are in terms of admitting wrong, people become even more and more extreme and use tactics to deny and like uh, to deny the reality and 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 do very very bad things uh, that are, that go against science and 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 truth. Right. So right, we call it doubling down and and so on. But you're also seeing uh, events called limited hangouts where people will admit to minor crimes as a way of hiding the major crimes absolutely i i um there were there were a lot of hard moments uh, uh during uh, the last three years when you ask yourself like i cannot believe that that i just heard that like uh to me um and maybe because i'm a father of six children um <clears throat> to me what is happening around um the impact on children on, on children and especially myocarditis uh is is one of the most maddening uh and 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 you know I, I get angry i get emotionally angry although i i you know i'm trying to you know usually i try not to argue with anger and emotions uh but when i hear uh <clears throat> medical doctors and scientists looking on data that tells them that the clinical rates of myocarditis after uh vaccines in in young people 16 to 24 say is one to 2000 3000 maybe maybe even you know more higher than that right and then they, they look on two studies that <clears throat> uh show that in in about two to three percent every dose you have an ele- elevated troponin that basically in the in the vaccine uh that basically is a s- clinical signal the most obvious sig- clinical signal for heart muscle damage and 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 when you see that, like, uh, and we when you understand that, like, a year later, months later, a, a substantial number of them still have scars in their hearts, <clears throat> and you say you continue to say it's rare, mild, and transient, and we don't, you know, it's it's it doesn't look like too serious. Th- that's to me outrageous. That that's to me, uh, you know losing any sense that, that's so that's a level of sociopathy is uh sorry uh sorry sorry to be extreme here no i agree with you we've actually got to a, a commercial break time so let's just take a pause and we'll be right back with the rise of independent media we are now america out loud news well, the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. 
Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rish with Professor Retzeff Levy. So we were just discussing more specifically myocarditis and, and the misrepresentation of it of, as a transient, harmless um, illness that, however, is a more or less permanent damage to the heart that may or may not become manifest at some point in the future. And, uh, you know, this is a, it's a very serious thing that it's known that people with clinical myocarditis have shortened lifespans, they're at risk of heart attacks, in the future and so on and that they it's not just that their cardiac output is more limited because part of their heart muscle doesn't work but that they can interrupt cardiac beats to the point where a beat doesn't take and then the heart stops beating and that's cardi immediate cardiac death sudden death that that's caused by these things and you know even in the autopsy even in standard autopsies when when people dissect the heart pathologists dissect the heart they look in the ventricles to look for damage they don't look in the atria but the atria are involved in conduction of the cardiac impulses and a, a scar in the atria is much more likely to lead to an aberrant heart rhythm and ventricular um, tachycardia and risk of death from that so these things are there and it's like playing Russian roulette with, with these people, thinking they're transient. Why? Because the person can get up and go to work and do their most mostly normal activities. Therefore, they're no longer affected by this. That's, that is totally not true. But by the way, uh, you have minimal uh, level, you know, minimal six months of not being able to do any physical exercise once you get myocarditis. But I think I think what your argument was that even the standard autopsies may not detect this unless you actually do the right autopsy. I mean, the, the other thing is interesting here is that we can actually learn from the past. This is not the first vaccine that uh, had a serious uh, issue in, in terms of causing uh, myocarditis uh, inflammation uh, inflammation of the heart. Uh, the, the smallpox vaccine um, um, was also uh, a culprit of, of of something like that. And there are multiple studies that the American uh, Army military did um, that show very very similar patterns to what we're seeing now. So, for example, there is a 2015 plus um, paper that basically <clears throat> compared uh, vaccinees in the military, young, again young, that received smallpox vaccine uh, compared to flu vaccine. And what they actually showed that, uh, like we see now from the two studies uh, from Thailand and Switzerland, that basically the rates of subclinical or, or cases where the symptoms are, are vague and essentially the um, patient doesn't even know that they were harmed, uh, was between 60 to 100% 100-fold uh, more uh, than the clinical uh, uh, rates. So in, in, if if we are ap applying the same ratio, uh, this is really um, you know about one to two one to three percent uh, every dose. And and mind you that smallpox you probably got like one or two doses and that's it. You didn't have boosters on boosters on boosters, right? So as you said, here we are playing. Um, you know, we, we are running the risk 
many more times. But but then there was a more recent study on 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 the um, soldiers that were um, harmed and were diagnosed with myocarditis and about their prolonged um, trajectory and prognosis of 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 health and. A substantial number of them, I think it was around 13%, uh, did not recover after years, multiple years. Um, and again, this is this is kind of striking because um, so many times uh, during the last three years, I've I've heard, oh, you're so you're so uh, you know you're courageous to be dissenting to be a dissenting voice, and I always replied, I'm. I, um, excuse me, I'm a mainstream voice. I'm a mainstream voice up to three years ago. The people that dissented and went to the very extreme and unreasonable policies are what is called currently the main main, main narrative. I, I actually think that we talked about is not, it's not like <clears throat> rocket science or like we are making a new theory here or <clears throat> some revolutionary uh, set of arguments. No, that's we are. I think that we, this is the sentiment of the mainstream path that we used to have. We, we think is is the mainstream up to three years ago. That's right. We are the normative scientists. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, and, and I think it's very important to insist on that because, yeah, I don't mind to be a dissenting voice. That's fine, but I, I don't think I'm a dissenting voice on these matters. I think I'm very kind of just just the reasonable, normative. Uh, arguments that you would consider uh, up to three years ago. And um, by, by the way, just going back to the uh, study that I mentioned before, the, the flu vaccine has had no myocarditis cases. So this is not something that all vaccines are creating. This is something that a few vaccines are creating. And those vaccines in the past were taken off the market. They stopped using that, that vaccine. Um, and right, here, but people weren't panicked to think that they they were all going to die from the infection. Yeah, I mean, and, and think about it. The scope there was only soldiers. Like smallpox vaccine was taken out of the vaccination program, the public uh, vaccination program, uh, even before that, right? Uh, so this was just the soldiers uh, in the, this country. Now here we are talking about all you know all the children, young people in the world, and we are subjecting them to this type of risk. I mean, you can just extrapolate how many how many young people and children were harmed and are left now with uh, harmed heart. Um, and not only, you know, the, the denial is not just about justice or, or about like admitting what the truth was. The denial is also preventing us from doing the appropriate surveillance, proactive surveillance to understand who is harmed and making sure that they are aware of that. Because as you said, like if you just go on with your life, you might end up one day dropping uh, if you are unlucky, right? So um, so, so we need to think about how we actually uh, develop treatments and and help the people that were harmed. But so, so the problem, the denial is, is, is not just about justice. <laughs> it's just about, it's about uh, really people are harmed. We need to make sure that they are not harmed even more, right? So what I don't understand is universities have mandated these vaccines all across the country for their university-age students, college-age students, 
And, you know, a substantial chunk of them participate in organized and, you know, athletic sports and, and so on and team sports and and push their endurance levels to, to the max. Mm-hmm. And so this was all mandated by the attorneys, the lawyers of these institutions saying that if we do nothing, we'll look like we didn't do everything we could to prevent people dying from COVID. And therefore, we're going to follow a recommendation of CDC and whatever, because if something bad happens, we can point to them and just say, just say, just following orders. That's what the lawyers told them. So that's what they did. Um, and now what happened? By the way, it was worse because they also imposed this on recovered. You know, the rule was for many universities, two months after you recovered, you have to take a booster, for example. I know, I know. The whole thing. But that was even worse because recovered person by all means have no benefit from, uh, the, the person doesn't have any benefit from from taking any more vaccines, but uh, we also know, I think that there is a growing evidence that vaccinating after infection uh, or getting an infection after vaccination is just increasing the risk of myocarditis, but also other side effects. Correct, correct. The adverse events are higher in, in infected people at post-vaccine. So so now what you got are, the, the why are the universities not seeing a risk that all of their athletes could just drop on the field at any time because of of their post-vaccine hazard. Why are their attorneys not telling them that every one of these players has to be evaluated for their cardiac damage before you let them play? Well, I I think, um, okay, I I think that the vaccination policy uh, of of universities uh, was, and I'm trying to be um, gentle here, was to say the least, very, very, very unfortunate. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a moment that the academic academic institutions would be proud of, you know, in, pers- in retrospective, to say the least. Uh, I think that um, I'm going to be cynical for a second, but, you know, I think if I'm a lawyer and I'm a Machiavellic lawyer, uh, I, w- I would recommend them to do exactly what I would continue to do what the CDC is doing. Ignore it. It's rare enough that the chances that you're going to have you know, too many cases that you cannot dismiss as um, you know, just a coincidence is very small, right? Uh, right, you call everything a coincidence. Right, like a student, a student is, is, you know, you have the student for two years, like uh, three years, right? They, then they leave, right? Uh, and Many people, if they drop now, nobody's checking whether this is a, a vaccine, uh, the result of a vaccine, right? So you're pretty protected in the current environment. Uh, I, what I think, what I think that might not work uh, very well for universities is that if if some something unfortunate will happen and the parents or the family of the of the students will insist on very thorough autopsy of the kind that actually discuss, reveals the the issue. But even then, you will have to basically uh, show that this is from the vaccine and not from COVID. And you will have to, sh- you know, you, you... there is enough deniability here from a legal perspective that I think if I, you know, unfortunately, uh, the Machiavelli uh, legal position might be to actually do nothing. Um, True, because at this but, point, but frankly speaking, if I would be a young person, if I would be a young person that does sport now, and I took vaccines, I would check myself. I would recommend everybody to check themselves. 
and not you know, and just before you continue to work out or, or bring your body to uh, extreme um, extraneous uh, efforts, because um, the chance is there, and you you know, you just be, be better be safe than sorry. Uh, but I think you're right. If a university is asking them to do this, and they know that there's damage, there is tantamount to admitting that there's damage, and that even just checking, even just checking broadly, right. will will already create a, a liability, right? Like so, right. I think that I think I'm not surprised that the legal recommendation is 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 not recommending to acknowledge this. The problem with with the that's the, a wrong argument, right? I know, but that's the one that's been you know propagandized. Uh, you're killing grandma. The the Jacobson case is th- that the the court set up four criteria for when a mandate could be used in order to and, and the smallpox vaccine more or less complied with all of those, and then you march ahead to now. And the the COVID vaccines satisfy none of those criteria. And the court's still saying, well, if Jacobson said you could have a mandate, then we could have a mandate. Without addressing whether Jacobson applies, it doesn't apply because none of the criteria are met. What, what were the, do you remember what the criteria were? Yeah, the criteria is that the vaccine has to be effective. It has to be narrowly tailored. There can't be any other methods of managing the pandemic without it. That that it has to be, you know, generally recognized as part of of, of clinical practice. Um, that uh, I've forgotten. There, there, there's more. It's been a while since I, I looked at this. Um, but we know there's other methods of managing the pandemic, that giving it to everybody is not narrowly tailored, that people who have natural immunity did not need that, sure. and yet they were doing it, pushing it, mandating it on them too. So it wasn't narrowly tailored and, and so on. It's very It was very easy to go through all the criteria and a court that said that you don't have to do that, just the fact that there's this pre- uh, precedent saying you can mandate, therefore you can mandate, is kind of brain dead. It's a court shirking its responsibility to look at the details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and you know, I think that in general, I, I don't believe that public health policy should rely on mandates, but rather than on trust, transparency, and explaining people the trade-offs and you know, trust that you know that if you have a good if you have a good alternative, people would choose it ultimately, right? Unless right, but that this is the discussion on the noble lie whether the elites have a right to misrepresent something for the so-called good of the population and especially the problem when it's not really for the good of the population but good for the industry good for corruption good for some other reason and and then thinking that they're enfranchised to lie to the public for the public's own good and they're actually incompetent of seeing what's in the public's own good yeah well let me put it this way um uh there are way fewer noble lies than most people think so <laughs> it's like correct because they're not noble that's right yeah that, my point is that, that, that very few lies can be uh considered noble but much fewer than what people would actually consider <laughs> so right and and uh, right this is the opposite of transparency and leaving people to make their own decisions based on a full evaluation of the knowledge but if you if you're the administrator of this 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 policy you think that people are stupid and, and that's the problem. And, and, and you know, I, I think actually uh, I'm going to go back to Israel. So w- w- Israel is a very illustrative example. So I, 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 I don't know if people know, but in Israel, the adherence to traditional uh, vaccines, um, in spite of the fact there is no mandate in Israel whatsoever, uh, has been extremely high, um, upper 90s often, right? Um, 
mostly because of a very, very strong community-based uh, healthcare system. And uh, trust. With, and trust and, 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 and local, commu- you know, local communities uh, interacting with their local providers and, and so forth. Um, now, when the COVID-19 uh, vaccination program started, and Israel was the first to launch it in the world, um, distrust actually played, I think, uh, plus the fear, uh, played a major role to basically obtain very high uh, adherence as well. Like, um, I think it was close to 90% and definitely in the high-risk population, high, high 90s again. Um, where it started to, and, and but then they did not, you know, that was not enough for them. And you could speculate why, but they forced mandates, the, the green passports, uh, and essentially prevented unvaccinated people from uh, access to public settings and, and potentially also fire them. And they also imposed the same concept and extended these these mandates to the booster vaccination. So it comes the booster, you suddenly see uh, about 50% of the adult population is being vaccinated. Uh, the fourth and the fifth booster, it's keep declining. Uh, and, you know, the fifth booster is like really fractions a small fraction of the very small fraction kids the same like you know 16 and above you get pretty pretty good adherence 12 to 15 drops and then like beyond below that there and now what you see is a major decline for 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 the first time in many decades that we we see decline uh decline in the adherence to flu and and traditional vaccines so what this is saying, we're just about out of time, but what this is saying is that Israelis are empirical, that they saw after the two or three shots that these shots weren't benefiting them or their relatives or the society. And they said, well, why should we do this if we're not seeing benefit? And they also recognize that they are being lied to, right? Like that, that and they kind of perceive the mandates as another reinforcement to the fact that they are being lied to because otherwise you don't need to reinforce. So I think, I think that that's a, to me, it's a great example of how trust and education and transparency are much better and winning winning uh, strategies on the, especially in the long run, and vice versa. Uh, coercion, control, lying, nobilize is a is a losing strategy in the long run, especially right. if you are vaccine advocate. By the way, you know, I think the more vaccine advocate you are. The, the, the more you should you should actually be worried about that. And the other thing that you, I think you need to be very worried, and I think maybe that's going to be the last, is the fact that we are showing a great level of denial and lack of empathy to vaccine-injured people. Because that's another, if you actually think about the sentiment of vaccination program is, you're going you're gonna to go and vaccinate because you're going to trust us, but and if something unfortunate and hopefully rare will happen to you, we're going to take care of you and compensate you, and, and right? That, that has not been the true case Probably in general, but in in COVID nineteen, in the context of COVID nineteen, more more strongly, and I think that that's another undermining um, uh, phenomena that I think is likely to uh, destroy trust in future vaccine programs. I, I agree with you. I think that that's absolutely right. Well, we're actually out of time. We've run over a little bit, so I hope everybody enjoyed our discussion. And again, if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Well, Redstaff, thank you very much. This has been a really great discussion. We could go on for another hour, and maybe we yeah. should in a few weeks or months. Yeah, I'd no love problem. To do that. Thanks, yeah. everybody, for listening, and please come back next week. My pleasure. Thank you, Harvey.